Good morning. Please turn with me into your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 1 through 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 1 through 8. Corinthians chapter 15 verses 1 through 8. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand. By which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I deliver to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he was chosen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then, less of all, he was seen by me, also by one born out of due time. Good morning. Please turn in your Bibles to John's Gospel. That's where we'll be in a moment. We ask his blessing on the reading and preaching of his word this morning. The best, the greatest... The most wonderful news that was ever announced to human beings is the good news that Jesus saves. Jesus saves. The good news, as we heard in our reading, is that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised from the dead on the third day according to the Scriptures. But why is this good news? And why should we rejoice over this good news? It's good news because it assures us that Jesus has dealt with our sin. Sin that had separated us from God. Sin that had cut us off from God. Sin that brought us His condemnation and His death and His wrath. But Jesus took our place. He was punished in our stead. He bore the punishment that was rightfully ours. He gave Himself as the redemption price for our sins. And He reconciled us to God. And in Him we have life. And there is no better news than that. There is no better news in all the world than the news that Jesus saves. But the good news that Jesus saves is good for a second reason. And that is, not only does Jesus' death deal with our sins, but His resurrection is the guarantee of our hope for eternity. God raised Jesus from the dead as a sign that He accepted Jesus' work on the cross for our sins. Because God raised Jesus, our sins are forgiven, and we can know that someday we too will rise from the dead. Jesus' resurrection is the guarantee of our eternal home in heaven with God, our assurance of eternal life. And that too is good news. In fact, there is no better news than this, that God loves us and saves us through His Son. But this would really be terrible news if God had not provided a way for us to make this good news our own. If there wasn't some way for us to make this salvation our own. And yet, just as He has done in all of His dealings with people, 
God has provided a way by which we may receive His grace. And in this case, He has given us instructions in how to become a Christian. I want to study those instructions this morning because there are some here who are thinking seriously about completing their obedience. And I hope through this lesson that they will be encouraged and that we will answer their questions and help them to do what is so important to do. I also want to study this this morning because there are some of us who are helping others to become Christians. And I hope the lesson will help and encourage them. I also want us to think about these things because they're first principles. And even if we've been Christians for decades and decades, we need to be reminded of them. We need to be reminded again of these first things. They're important to our faith. And as you read through the Bible, one of the things that that God frequently does is that He reminds us of what He's done before or what has gone before. So, in this lesson this morning, we may not be plowing new ground, but we are following the example that God would have us. To become a Christian, we first have to hear the Gospel. In Acts chapter 8, we read one of our favorite accounts in the book of Acts. The account of the Ethiopian traveling home from Jerusalem, riding in his chariot, studying the book of Isaiah as he goes along, and is suddenly joined by an evangelist named Philip. The Ethiopian was reading from Isaiah. He was reading from Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7 through 8, a prophetic passage that explains the meaning and the significance of Jesus' death on the cross. The treasurer was a devout man. The treasurer was somebody who loved God. He made the long journey from Ethiopia to Jerusalem to worship. But as he read God's Word, he didn't understand what he was reading. And when Philip asked him if he understands, he says, no. How can I understand this unless somebody guides me? He has a good question. Is the prophet speaking about himself? Is this a word that he has about Isaiah and what would happen in Isaiah's life? Or is he talking about someone else? And so Philip starts with this very message, with this very passage, and he tells him the good news about Jesus. Acts 8, verse 35. The Ethiopian hears the good news. Jesus in Matthew 11, verse 28 to 30 offers an invitation to all who hear him. And his invitation is this, Come unto me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me, on you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Becoming a Christian involves coming to Jesus. That might even be one way we could describe the whole process. It's about coming to Jesus, and it is about learning about Him. And it is learning from Him. And it especially involves learning that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and that He was raised for our lives. Every time the story of Jesus is told, every time the story of the cross is repeated, God is calling lost people to salvation.
Paul explains in Romans chapter 10 and verse 17 that faith comes from hearing the message. The message is heard through the word of Christ. So if you're not a Christian this morning, if you haven't done the things that we're talking about this morning, but your heart is open to God's love, you've already heard the essentials of the gospel, the essentials of the good news. But I would also encourage you as part of your coming to the Lord to to read the gospels, to read Matthew or Mark or Luke or John. And in reading them, meet Jesus who wants to be your Savior who is your Savior, and who through the pages of the Gospel speaks to you and invites you to receive the salvation that He would give you. If you're studying with someone, introduce them to Jesus by sharing the Gospel with them, the Gospels with them. Let them learn of God's love and this wonderful expression in the cross. We are not saved simply by hearing about salvation, but that is the place that we start. That is the first step in our journey to salvation. Again, as Paul says in Romans 10, hearing leads to faith. So to become a Christian, not only must we hear, but we must also believe. I think here about the Apostle John. The Apostle John was given the privilege of writing one of the four Gospels. And of those Gospels, he is the only one given the, that gives the explicit reason for writing his gospel. And that reason is found in John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. If you'll turn there, please. John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. John tells us, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. In telling the story of Jesus, John focused on seven miracles that Jesus did to help us to come to faith. In John chapter 2 and verse 1, Jesus turns water into wine at a wedding feast in the village of Cana. In John chapter 4 and verse 43, Jesus heals the son of a royal official. In John 5 and verse 1, Jesus heals a man who's been an invalid for 38 years. In John 6 verses 1 through 24, Jesus feeds 5,000 men from a few loaves of bread and a few fish. John 9 tells how Jesus gave a man born blind his sight. Jesus raises his friend Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11. And then finally, the greatest miracle of all, Jesus himself is raised from the dead in John chapter 20. Well, Jesus did many, many more miracles than these, as our verse told us. These were written to help us believe, to help us to come to faith in Jesus Christ, to help us believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And as you read through this gospel in particular, Over and over, Jesus says that those who believe in him will have eternal life. But what does it mean to believe in Jesus? What does it mean to believe in Jesus for salvation? Well, it certainly includes accepting as true the story of Jesus, acknowledging that it is the truth, 
accepting as true that he is the Christ, that he is the Son of God, and that God raised him from the dead. But when Jesus says in John chapter 11 and verse 25 that those who believe in him will live, he means much, much more than accepting certain statements or facts as true. By believe, by faith, Jesus meant the surrender of ourselves to him. He meant that we give ourselves completely and fully to him. In fact, the phrase believe in him comes from a worldly setting. It comes from the world of business. It's found on on bill of lading that explained that, that something that was owned by one person has now been put into the ownership of another person. And it's the same language and it's the same kind of grammar. It's the same point. So, if I have a car that I want to sell, the person buying it gives me the money and I sign over the title. And the sale is complete at that point. Jesus' statement, believe in me, has to do with signing the title over to him. It is saying to Jesus, you are the Christ. You are the Son of God. God raised you from the dead. And you own the title to me. You have ownership of me. I am yours totally and completely. It is a way of saying I I will do whatever you want me to do. To say I believe is to say that I am yours without reservation. And you can do with me what you want. I am mine no more as we sing. Which tells us that the faith that is required of us to be saved begins with accepting the truth of who Jesus is. But it goes beyond that to obedience. To believe in Jesus and to be saved is to obey. And to obey is to have faith. On one occasion in Luke chapter 6 and verse 46, Jesus asked some people who were following him, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Belief is about hearing Jesus and believing Him and doing what He says. If you are giving thought to becoming a Christian, I hope that what you've heard about Jesus, especially the saving work for you, is bringing you to such obedient faith because that obedient faith will save. Faith alone. Just simply opening your heart and let Jesus come in, as, as the popular phrase is, is not the faith that saves. It is the faith that obeys that saves. That's the kind of faith that we must have if we want salvation. So what obedience does Jesus require of us if we're going to be saved? Well, to become a Christian further, we must repent of our sins. Matthew tells us that when Jesus began his earthly ministry, his message was a simple one. According to Mark chapter 1 and verse 14, Jesus preached the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus was calling people's attention to the fact that in him a new day was dawning in God's relationship with men and women. That God's rule, that God's kingship would soon be established in human hearts that received him. 
but to prepare human hearts for God's rule, Jesus also said there had to be a change of heart. Change of heart. Where people had lived in rebellion against God, where people had lived virtually without God, where people had lived with God at the edges of their life, Jesus now calls on them to turn to God and to His will and to seek His forgiveness and to live in fellowship with Him. On the day of Pentecost, Peter preached the gospel to the people and visitors who were in Jerusalem, and he told them forcefully that God raised Jesus from the dead. And raising Jesus, God made Him Lord and made Him Christ. And then he tells them, this same Jesus who you nailed to the cross. And in Acts 2 and verse 37, we are told that when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were cut through and through. And they asked Peter and the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And the very first part of his answer is repent. You need to repent. In sorrow, they need to turn from their sins and come back to God. And you know, that's the Bible's definition of what repentance is. It includes sorrow. It includes grief for doing wrong. But repentance is a change of heart. It is a turning of our hearts. Later in Acts, the Apostle Paul is on trial before King Agrippa and a Roman governor named Festus. And Paul tells them how he became a Christian. And he explains to them how Christ had commissioned him to be his apostle. And if you turn to the book of Acts, look at chapter 26. Because in that account of these events, Paul gives us a fuller statement of the commission that he received. Acts 26, verse 16 through 18. Jesus says to Paul, But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and those in which I will appear to you. Delivering, the, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. When we're not Christians, when we haven't done these things to become a Christian, we're blind. We're in the dark. We live in spiritual darkness. And the power and control of our lives is not ourselves, but Satan himself. Paul's work was a work of repentance. He was going to the world to call people to repent, to help them to see, to get them to leave the darkness and come into the light where they would find God to get them to leave the power of Satan and enter the power of God. If you're not a Christian, if you haven't completed your obedience, you're running as hard as you can away from God. But God is calling you to stop. Stop running. Turn completely around and come back to Him. Because He will forgive your sins.
And he will give you a place among those who are made holy by faith in him. To become a Christian, we must confess our faith. One of the things that most people fear more than anything else is having to get up and speak publicly. If I asked somebody to come up here and finish this sermon, they would probably say, oh no, not me. I knew a dear elder who was dearly loved by his congregation who hated to get up and make announcements. And he would get up there and he would start talking in his normal voice, but it would trail off. And at the end, you couldn't hear the announcements. It's kind of a common fear. And yet, confessing our faith, making it public, is part of what God asked us to do. When Jesus was preparing his disciples for their mission to the world, he said, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. For whoever denies me before men, I also will deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Matthew 10, verse 32 to 33. Again, when Paul was discussing the salvation of the Jews, he wrote something in Romans that helps us to understand this. Turn to Romans chapter 10. And let's read verses 8 through 10 together. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. When we give voice to the faith that we hold in our hearts, when we confess that Jesus is the Lord of our lives, when we acknowledge that God raised him from the dead, the promise of God is that we will be saved. So if you're not a Christian this morning, but you've come to faith, and you're now ready to repent of your sins and turn to God, we hope that you'll be willing to make this simple confession that you believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the Son of God, and that God raised him from the dead. And then becoming a Christian means that we submit to immersion in water. You know, in America, most of us only speak one language. And we just kind of look at people who speak two or three as kind of strange. But that really says something bad about us, not anything bad about them. But in the first century, the Greeks, the people, spoke a language that was rich in vocabulary. Just like us, they could think, they could speak of something being sprinkled. Just like us, they could speak of something being poured. And they could speak of something being immersed. Those were distinct words, common words. And when God gave his instructions for baptism, he did not choose the word sprinkle or pour one time. No place in the New Testament is baptism ever described with those words. The word that he used every time is the word immerse for this final act of obedience and becoming a Christian. And it is Jesus himself who tells us that immersion is required, that it is essential for our salvation. 
In John 3, in verse 3, he told a Jewish leader named Nicodemus that to enter the kingdom, one must be born of water and spirit. When Jesus commissioned the apostles in Matthew 28 and verse 19, he told them to go and make disciples of all nations. How? How do you do that? Jesus says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Again, in Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2.38, not only is repentance required for salvation, but so is immersion. It is when we repent, it is when we are immersed that our sins are forgiven. It is there in baptism and the immersion into water that we come in contact with the blood of Christ and our sins are removed. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. And those who are immersed not only have their sins taken away, but they also receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul tells us what happens in the act of baptism. Turn back in Romans to Romans chapter 6. And let's read together from verses 1 through 4. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. The miracle of immersion is twofold. First, as we are immersed in the water, we are joined to Jesus' death and burial. Our old life ends. And we shouldn't think, oh, he means something spiritual or, or he means a metaphor. We need to understand the spiritual reality that when we're immersed in the water, a death takes place. The old life that we have been living before that moment dies and is gone. And the second miracle is that having been buried with Christ, we rise to walk in newness of life. We rise to live a new life. Some people, including a few who worship with us, tell us that we are saved before we're baptized. That we're saved at the point of faith. But look at this passage again. Paul tells us that it is in baptism that our old life ends. And then comes the new life. It doesn't say we get the new life and then the old life dies, does it? There is an order there. The old has to pass away and be removed before the new can begin. Baptism is not a symbol. It is not a symbolic act that we can experience or participate in if we want to or if we don't want to. We don't have to. It is the necessary birthplace of a new life in Christ. It is the way in which we receive eternal life. If you haven't done these things, we hope that you'll consider doing them today. The New Testament is clear. Those who answer God's grace by doing these things will be saved, and those who do not do them will be lost. God loves you. Jesus loves you. And we love you. And we pray that you will hear God's loving call today and that you will answer it with obedient faith today and begin living the Christian life today. Don't wait another day. Today is the day of salvation.
for everyone who hears and believes, repents and confesses, and is baptized. Do you need to do that today? If you do, won't you come while we stand and sing?